Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter. Please like, follow, subscribe at brightnews.com, anchor.fm forward slash AACONS, or at ACONS, AACONS.substack.com. Leonidas Johnson is a podcaster, uh, an actor, director, musician, hip-hop artist, and speech-language pathologist. He's also the author of Raising Victims, The Pernicious Rise of Critical Race Theory. Welcome to the show, Leonidas. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. There are few issues today as discussed, diagnosed, and debated as critical race theory, or Mm -hmm. CRT. But as you point out, part of the ongoing debate is over how CRT is properly defined. One of CRT's leading proponents, Professor Ibram X. Kendi, says this about it, quote, when we think of racial inequality in this country, I think it's important for us to recognize that historically we've been arguing over why that inequality exists. The racist position has stated that inequality exists because there is something inferior or superior about different racial groups, whether culturally, behaviorally, genetically, and the anti-racist position has largely stated that inequality is the result of policy and racist policy. So therefore, the problem isn't bad people. The problem is bad policy. And it's important if you want to eliminate inequality to identify those bad policies and replace them with the type of policies that can create equity and justice for all, end quote. Is CRT just the elimination of bad policies that create racism, or do you define CRT differently? So the founders of CRT would tell you that that's exactly what it is. It's a system for trying to root out the invisible racism that's inherent in our institutions. But it goes a lot deeper than that. And they'll even admit that they are suspicious of the constitution, the foundational structures of our country, Western culture itself, and that they are antagonistic toward those things because they believe that the entire system, the entire structure of of Western society has been formed around white supremacy. So it's actually, it's Antonio Gramsci's idea of cultural hegemony, which Antonio Gramsci was an Italian Marxist. And cultural hegemony is this idea that the, the people in power create this system in society, the status quo, and, and that benefits themselves and oppresses everybody else, even to the point where it's, it's, again, it's status quo and it's the normal everyday operations of things. And the people who are being oppressed don't even recognize that they're being <laughs> oppressed. They think it's just normal. They think it's just the everyday, everyday operations of things. And so they need to be made conscious. And then, again, this comes back into Marx's idea of class consciousness, which we can replace class with race. And think that, you know, well, people need to be made conscious of their racial plight and the the racial oppression. So they realize that even though things they can't see racism directly, they don't see direct evidence of racism. But since racial disparities occur in these systems, that's the evidence that the systems themselves are racist. And Ibram X. Kendi has said that 
explicitly that any system that yields racial disparities is evidence of a racial of, of a racist system. Now, that doesn't what it doesn't take into account is the, all of the other variables that drive disparities between individuals. Uh, inequality is doesn't ha necessarily need to be driven by genetics or driven by oppression or bias. Uh, it could be driven by all kinds of different variables, culture, behavior, attitudes, uh, whether or not you have an internal or external locus of control. Uh, I mean, there's there's an infinite number of variables between two individuals that that make up differences in outcomes. And you know, Thomas Sowell always says that you know, the, the same person isn't even equal to himself on different days. <laughs> you know, so so the idea that we can somehow change systems and craft equal outcomes is it's nonsense but that's exactly what critical race theory promotes professor kendi also says quote another misnomer about critical race theory is that it's anti-white or racist and i don't think people realize that one of the oldest and most vile white supremacists talk it's one of the most vile white supremacist talking points end quote is it a white supremacist talking point? Or do you find that CRT, in fact, is racist? It's absolutely racist. I it, What it does is it it's trying to upend the, the perceived hierarchy. So the perceived hierarchy is that white supremacy is imbibed in the system. So it's trying to upend that. And again, I'll quote Ibram X, X. Kendi back to him. The idea that you have to engage in discrimination and present discrimination in order to remedy past discrimination, or you need to engage in future discrimination to remedy present discrimination. So he uses the word discrimination, but it's racism. If you're if you're discriminating on racial lines, that's that's racism. And I know progressive, progressives are trying to change the definition of racism and make it seem like <laughs> it has to. You have to have some kind of institutional power in society, which they redefine that too, because clearly black people also have institutional power. Yes. But the idea that black people don't have any kind of institutional power whatsoever and therefore can't be racist. It's it's outrageous. That's the only way that idea works. But they explicitly market and and by the way, equity itself requires inequality. So then they so they specifically promote and market the idea of discriminating along racial lines. And I don't know what else to call that other <laughs> other than racism. That's right. Now you wrote quote. What is also often forgotten in these discussions is that there are often more significant intragroup disparities than intergroup disparities. If disparities automatically equal bias, then how do we explain why Black people who engage in different cultural behaviors experience significantly different outcomes, end quote? Would you expand upon what you mean by intragroup disparities within the African-American community and how they help explain the significantly different outcomes you reference? Yeah, well, a lot of times the only disparities that matter in these conversations is the disparities between black people as a collective group and white people as a collective group. And nobody ever looks at any of the other variables or any other groups or any even at the individual level. And if you look within groups, uh, you look at such significant outcomes between black people. You could take a you take one black individual and take another black individual. One has abysmal outcomes. One is, you know, LeBron James or somebody, you know, somebody that's, right. that's doing very, very well for themselves. And then you say, OK, what's the difference? 
if if disparities automatically equal bias, then we have to assume that LeBron is benefiting from some kind of bias system, whereas the other the other black person is not, or they're they're under the the boot of oppression somehow. And honestly, that's what they'll even tell you because I've <laughs> I've had this discussion with people before, and I said, well, okay, like I I don't really experience racism directly, other than from from white liberals who who want to be a white savior and tell me I have internalized white supremacy or something like that. Um, I and I, I was like, am I am I a, a magic black person? And like, what is what is going on here? Why is my life? Why am I experiencing success to a certain degree uh, without any sort of oppression? And they tell me that I benefit from white privilege, that I haven't, <laughs> I, I do have internalized white supremacy and I benefit from white privilege. And so it, it, it becomes this very pseudoscientific uh, sort of post hoc way of, of, of explaining away the evidence. Because I, if you look at any population that engages in personal responsibility, uh, an internal locus of control, uh, a good work ethic, valuing education, uh, doesn't you know rejecting promiscuity and then uh, having children out of wedlock. Things, I mean, very basic, <laughs> basic things that we would say are these are good cultural behaviors. If you look at any group of people, any any individual, any group of people that engages that and, and embraces those behaviors, they have positive outcomes. And so it it's. It, it makes no sense really to reject those variables and say that, oh, just because there's differences between these two racial groups, those are due to bias, but the differences within the groups, those are due to something else. And you can look at white people as well. And you say like, okay, like look at these successful white people and look at these yeah. not so successful white people. And what is the difference? What are the variables that drive those disparities? And why do those variables not matter when we're talking about intergroup disparity or intergroup disparities? So- that's so interesting that you say that because yesterday on Facebook, one of my friends uh, that I went to high school with uh, back in the Stone Ages, um, sorry, Mark, uh, <laughs> one of my friends that I went to, uh, to high school with posted on his Facebook uh, page uh, an article from MSN that said America hates black people. And I kind of pushed back gently because, you know, there was this whole discussion about, oh, reparations and, you know, we need to have equity and, you know, all these DEI policies and all of this other stuff to level the playing field. And I kind of mm -hmm. gently pushed back and I said, wait a minute. Uh, and it's to your point. I said, what about resilience in our community uh, as a as a motivator to get out of poverty or whatever, you know, situation we might be in? What about these external character or these internal characteristics there that are not outward things, because I said, there's no college that I can't go to that I, if I want to go there, there's no sign that says, you know, white people only there, there's no workplace that says whites only none of that. So, I mean, I don't understand why we're having this discussion that it's always a racial thing. Education is a wonderful thing. And that's what got me out of, uh, poverty. And I know it did for a lot of other people, including my friend who posted this. Um, and so I feel like we automatically go to this kind of crutch of victimhood rather than 
I didn't like my situation, so I improved it. Um, and people will say, oh, well, but you're lucky, you're special, you're this, you're that. Well, no, it's hard work. Because what did slaves do after they were freed? They couldn't read most of them. They couldn't write most of them. So, I mean, what was it was self-determination. It was resilience. Those are characteristics that are internal and inherent. And those are things that you don't learn necessarily, um, other than maybe through hard experience um, that yeah. those characteristics come out. So, you know, to your point, that, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, in I think internal is the is the primary word there because you have the, and I, I think I mentioned locus of control earlier. You have an internal locus of control, which means that you have control over your life. You feel like you right. have you hand, your hands on the steering wheel and you can shape your own destiny. That doesn't mean that things won't happen that are out of your control. But when you have an internal locus of control, you recognize that even if things happen that you can't control, you can, can you still control how you respond to those things. And so you, you have agency, you have, you have right. strength and you, know, right. and re, you said resiliency. I like that word, but what, yeah, what critical race theory and this sort of victim mentality teaches is an external locus of control. It teaches children specifically that they don't have control of their outcomes that no matter what they do there's always this system acting upon them and these external forces to tear them down and what that does is that it disempowers them it's disempowering and it teaches as a a learned a sense of learned helplessness you know where you, i mean if you feel like no matter what you do you're always going to be knocked back down why try why, if, if you have excuses at the ready, if you can just blame racism for your failures, then why try? Like, it's going to be racism is going to knock you down anyway. You know, so I, I look at a school system like Baltimore, uh, where it yes. just has abys abysmal outcomes. And I talk about Baltimore all the time. It's just driving yes, me crazy. So do we. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> but it, it's, it's mostly it's mostly run by black people and uh, Democrats. Know, I mean, the left. And, Right, exactly. Those and, who say that school choice is a bad outcomes. thing, yeah, yeah, <laughs> just, just awful. Yeah, I think it's like seven percent uh, proficient in math and like twelve percent. Yes, proficient that new in report that just came out. Yes, yeah, absolutely, abs absurd. And say, it, and and yet, when you talk to people about it, they'll still blame systemic racism and they'll still yes. say, "Well, you know, <laughs> it's like." And it's also one of the highest funded school systems in the country, so you, they yes. can't even blame funding anymore. So we like, talked about this just last week. We said, you know, we throw money at this. We've thrown money at it for decades. We were talking to Alan West, and I said, you know, I'm 58 years old. I can't remember a time when the right was in control of Baltimore or Oakland or uh, Detroit or LA or any of these metropolitan right. inner city urban areas where children are, are, are failed, you just completely failed by the public school system. Um, and yet the answer is to throw more money at it. And it hasn't yeah. solved it in decades. I mean, it's really literally been 60, 70 years. And Long so <laughs> what is the answer then? I mean, if we keep throwing money at it and Johnny still cannot read, that <clears throat> seems to tell you that that's not the answer. And so I homeschooled my three children. I was not going to put my black children in a failing school. Um, and I've got a kid that graduated college with a degree, uh, a bachelor's degree at the age of 20. My daughter is already established as a vet tech. 
in her career. Um, and my youngest, he has some cognitive issues, but you know, he thrives pretty. I mean, because I was able to do some one-on-one -on -one with him, he got up to grade in a lot of things pretty quickly. So, you know, we, we have our kids trapped in these failing schools. And yet, yeah. like you said, you know, it's always this external agency. And when we try to do something about it, like the women who were arrested for crossing zip codes to put their children in better schools, that was a crime. See, yeah, that's that's outrageous. And we homeschool our kids too for, Wonderful. for many, of the, many of the same reasons. But yeah, pe pe parents need to have that choice. To why would you, why would you want parents to keep their kids trapped in failing schools? It makes it makes no sense. But I, I like to tell the story of uh, of Nemo in Finding Nemo and 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 Gil and the relationship between them in the fish tank. And I don't know if you if you remember that part when Nemo gets stuck in the filter tank or in the filter tube. And he's freaking out because he's scared and his fin doesn't work very well. Um, he's having a bad time. And all the other fish in the tank, uh, they start freaking out. It's like, we got to help him. We got to get him out of there. And Gil's like, nobody touch him. Nobody touch him, right? Because Gil recognized that Nemo had the capacity. He had the strength. He had the fortitude. He had the ability to swim out on his own. And he didn't want Nemo to have that sort of internalized victimhood where yeah. to think that he couldn't do it. He could have. Gil could have come into that and said, oh, you know what? Yeah, you have a gimpy fin. It's not fair that you're stuck in that tube. None of the other fish are stuck in the tube. This is this is inequitable. You know, we have to have equity here. We need to get you out or we need to put the other fish in the tube so it's fair. Whatever. Or a special program. You know, yes. Right. We need to do something. Something. It's not, it's not your fault you're in the tube. This is terrible. But he didn't do any of that. He told, he told Nemo to swim out on his own and he convinced him that he had the strength and ability and the courage to do that. And that's what we need to be teaching children in these schools. That even if you're in adverse circumstances and you're facing obstacles, you have the power to take Take control of your own destiny, and you have the strength and fortitude to overcome it. And you not blame your external circumstances, not look for excuses. Just do it. Just swim out of the tube, man. <laughs> <laughs> now you just mentioned your children. So, uh, and, and you mentioned your children in your book, Raising Victims. How yes. have you handled the challenges of being an involved parent during a time when CRT and other Marxist teachings are so prevalent? Yeah, well, so we're we're pretty fortunate. We live in a pretty conservative area of southeastern Ohio, and that hasn't quite crept in as much as other areas in the country. So we've we've been able to shield them a little bit from that. Um, and in homeschooling, we've been able to take control. Yes. But as far as like the as far as the race stuff goes specifically. I, our kids have family members that span the spectrum of human variation. You know, we have we have people of all different races in our in our family of all different skin colors. And so we teach our we don't teach our children to have a specific racial identity or to internalize racial identity as a massive part of who they are. And like even all four of my kids, like they they have different skin colors and they actually get lighter as they get younger. And we used to joke that it looks like a printer running out of ink. But they recognize the differences between each other. Like one of my daughters has blue eyes even. And they understand the differences, but they don't, it doesn't matter. They have white family members. They have black family members. They have, uh, they have uh, a Puerto Rican uh, family. I mean, we, we it, like, again, it spans the spectrum. So 
they don't see race as consequential to who they are yet, thankfully. And we've been able to avoid that for the most part. But as far as what else is going on in the culture, it's very concerning because I, I don't want that sort of attitude to sneak into their sneak into that siren song to sneak into their minds because it's very alluring. It's, it's, it's very tempting to go down that path um, because there's so much emotion attached to it. And there's so much, it, it, it really pulls people into it because it's very, I mean, if you have an excuse for your failures or if people will uh, incentivize you to behave a certain way and to say, yes, I am a victim, which our society does. It says like, oh yeah, oh, you poor victim, you, let me give you, <laughs> let me yeah. give you accolades and, you know, let me give you an Oscar since, you know, <laughs> you know whatever right. it may be, but, but there's an incentive there to behave that way. So I hope they avoid it. And we try to teach them that, you know, it, there are people in the world who care very much about skin color. And so that kind of covers the spectrum of it. Um, but as far as us and our family, we don't, we don't see people that way. We recognize individual differences and we treat people as individuals and we meet them where they are. And like Martin Luther King said, we judge them by the content of their character and the fruit that they bear. So. That's absolutely right. We do the same thing. And having kids raised in church also helps. I mean, the homeschooling community is one aspect of it, but, you know, also in church, you don't see people by their skin color. You see people by the way they treat each other. And so that's absolutely right. That's great that you're doing that with your kids. You say that CRT advocates are technically correct when they say that they are not teaching CRT in schools, but instead mm -hmm. they use sleight of hand to get around prohibitions against teaching it. Can you expand upon some of those? Yeah, sure. So there's the academic portion of critical race theory, which you know you attach the founders to, like people like Derek Bell or Richard Delgado or uh, Kimberly Crenshaw. I mean, these people are, uh, they, they push the academic parts and that's the part that is taught in universities, in law schools, in the uh, school of education, wherever. Uh, that stuff is not normally happening in K through 12 schools. They're not, teachers aren't passing out Richard Delgado textbooks or you know, Kimberly <laughs> Crenshaw essays. They're, they're not doing that. But it's a, what's happening in K through 12 classrooms is applied theory. And you could think of it as critical race praxis rather than critical race theory. And, and an, an analogy I like to use is uh, like a music teacher. A music teacher goes to college and studies advanced music theory, right? But when they go to teach you know, kindergartners or, or first graders, they're not <laughs> probably not going to be teaching them advanced music theory, but they're going to teach them how to sing the songs. And that's what's happening with critical race theory. They're, they're not teaching them the advanced theory. They're teaching them how to sing the songs. And they're hiding that in diversity, equity, and inclusion, yes. in social emotional learning, yes. um, anti-racism initiatives, equity initiative, whatever, whatever it may be. All, all this sanitized cultural responsiveness, you know, like all of these sanitized terms that seem on the surface like they're good things. Most people would agree, like, oh yeah, social emotional learning. That sounds great. Um, we want diversity. We want we equity sounds like a good word. <laughs> you know, like so most people would go along with that stuff, but underneath of it, they're they're infusing the more radical ideology, the idea that racism is endemic in society, it's interwoven into our very institutions. Slavery can explain why you're failing math class. I mean, it's just <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's nonsense. Yeah. 
And, you know, the other piece of it that really disturbs me is that the pendulum has swung so far the other way that those sorts of programs are actually enacting a different sort of racism. And that's against people who are Asian, people who are white, because, you know, now they're they're um, the racial bias to get into schools. You don't have to take the SAT. You don't have to take the LSAT. You don't have to take Well, they push back on the LSAT. But, you know, math, you don't have to do all these. And 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 we're going to dumb down the tests so that more of you can pass. If that's not the soft bigotry of low expectation, I don't know what it is because that to yeah. me, and then you've got people who are uh, academically ready for the rigors of a four year course of study who are not being admitted because they're white or because they're Asian or because, you know, they're some other overrepresented uh racial ethnic group. Um, And so I kind of pushed back on that recently. And I said, you know, I want a doctor who's going to be able to perform the surgery. (laughs) I don't care what race they are. I want the best person for the job. And so there are rigors that are attached to four-year institutions of learning. And so to have our children prepared for that, you know, it's so funny because the senior year that we homeschooled my, my daughter, she had to write so much. And she was like, mom, really, please, no more writing, no more writing. And I'm like, girl, when you go next year, that is all you are going to do is write. You're going to do nothing but write. And sure right. enough, she came back to me. You were right. You know, and I mean, she was thankful, you know, yeah. but I had prepared her for that, not because she was black, but because she was going to be a college freshman. And that's what you do when you're in college. So, right. you know, those sorts of things are, are, are really fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we mentioned Baltimore earlier and another shocking statistic that comes out of Baltimore is that they're graduating like 70% of their students, which you, that, there's something wrong there yes. because if only 7% are proficient in math and 12% proficient in reading, where, where's that gap? How yes. are you closing that gap? So they're graduating kids and then these kids are going to college and getting into college and then failing out within, you know, and it's racist because they're failing. And then call it racist. Yeah. yeah. It's like, well, it's like, well, they're, they're not prepared. And then, yeah. and then, and then Thomas Sowell talks about it too, you know, like even, even kids who don't do as abysmally, but maybe they, they graduate, you know, middle of their class or whatever, but then they're getting admitted to like MIT or something like that, where, which they, they don't have the intellectual capacity to keep up with that, the rigor of the work, then yes. they would be much better served at a different college where they would excel and do fine. But because of these diversity initiatives, they get put in an environment where they cannot succeed. And, and then it's just called, it's, again, it's called racism. And it's outrageous. But, Absolutely you know, right. the, the, the diversity initiatives are, I mean, diversity itself is, is a good thing. I would say Diver, like, diversity as a a natural occurring thing where people are building on uh, diverse strengths and and thing and coming together as a team to make the team stronger sports is a good example of that you you need diversity in on a football team you need a quarterback you need wide receivers you need a running back uh you need defense you know you need all these people to fill these diverse roles and when it all comes together it creates a beautiful thing it creates a strong football team Uh, you can't have a team full of quarterbacks it's not going to (laughs) work you're not going to win very many games but 
what we're dealing with is this superficial arbitrary diversity where people are being put in positions where it has nothing to do with the position itself. It's just like, oh, we want like stick with the sports analogy. It's like we we need more blue-eyed quarterbacks or more blue more five eight wide receivers. Like why? <laughs> like it makes no sense just to fill the quota and fill in in so it, in that sense it's a it's inherently weakness. It's an inherent weakness. It makes your team weaker. It makes whatever it is weaker. And I think about, I think specifically about the Supreme Court and Katanji Brown Jackson, that's her name, right? And the whole idea of, of putting a racial and gender filter yes. on that position. So if it, she may very well have been the best person for the job, sure. right? It's like it's, it may very well have been. But by putting a racial and gender filter on that, you're, what you're saying is that she was not the best person for the job. That's right. And the, and the better options needed to be filtered out so that she would be the remaining best person for the job. And so, and if she were the, if she were the best person for the job, that should be insulting to her because she would have got it anyway. Why do you need yeah. the racial and gender fit? Why do you need that stigma? It's like lowering the the rim to six feet and telling the defense to clear off so LeBron can dunk by himself. <laughs> you know, like if he's the best person on the court, why do you need to do that? You don't. It's right. it's nonsense. So yeah, diversity is outrageous on, on many different fronts. <laughs> It was announced this week that there is a lawsuit uh, being brought on by a professor at the University of Texas at Austin who is suing his school administrators for punishing him for speaking out against the school's promotion of CRT. In your experience, how much pressure is there for academics to be CRT advocates? Oh, man, it's, it's huge, because especially in, in, in the university level, because, you know, conservatives in the universities, and I forget the exact percentage, but it's, it's very low. It's, I mean, maybe like 8% or something like that. That maybe even be too high. <laughs> but conservatives to progressive professors, like conservatives are the extreme minority in the university level. So you have a lot of groupthink that's happening on these college campuses. And there's not any any sense of well we talk about diversity there's not any sense of ideological diversity there's no sense that people even want to pursue ideological diversity so critical race theory is treated as a foregone conclusion and that's one of the main issues with it i wouldn't it wouldn't be such of a problem because at the university level you learn all kinds of things right you learn you learn marxism you you can learn um all kind you can you can learn about hitler's ideology um and, but you're not applying it. It's not learning it to learn how to do it and how to implement it <laughs> into your life so that you can take it out into public schools and corporations and that sort of thing. You're learning about it as a historical thing. Um, it wouldn't be such a problem if that's what CRT was, but it's, that's not what it is. It's it's an ideology that's being taught in universities and it's being treated as incontrovertible truth in the foregone conclusion. So its presuppositions are treated as you can't challenge them. And if you do, then we're going to uh, punish you in some manner because, you know, you're, you're being racist, you're being oppressive. Because if, I mean, think if you, if you embrace the idea that racism is endemic in society, that it's interwoven into the fabric of our institutions and hidden, and we can't see it only in racial disparities and racial outcomes, 
Um, and if you believe that, that it's you're just the existence of white people <laughs> or the existence of these systems oppresses black people, then anybody speaking out against that is going to be part of that oppression uh, in your mind anyway. And so you have a duty to, <laughs> to eliminate <laughs> that, that oppression and go. And that's what critical race theory teaches. It te it's it, Richard Delgado says specifically that there's two aspects to it. There's the um, there's the academic portion that exists in universities, and then there's the activist portion. And they say, you know, this this was what makes it different. They have active, they train up activists, they train up evangelists to send out into society to evangelize and proselytize and hunt down heretics to to punish and that dismantle these institutions. So it's it's more of a religion than anything. It's not an academic discipline. It's a, it's definitely a worldview and it's a operates like an extremist religion. So it's tough. When you say that, it makes me think of the Negro project, you know, with Margaret Sanger, let's get the Negro minister to go out there and sell this mm -hmm. terrible thing. That's going to decimate this community. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And Planned Parenthood, uh, they're very, very trepidatious about that. They, they kind of, they, they don't want to distance themselves too far from Margaret Sanger, but they, 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 now they only recently acknowledged the, yes. the more racist history of, of her, but they're, they're very careful not to, not to mention the more egregious things, but yeah, I mean, Sanger just, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't see how people don't see these things. I don't either. Uh, you know, I don't know how the other than just not not looking deeper into the history, which I I just talked to David Webb about that, and it's just this idea. You know, people who look on the surface and they hear certain things that sound they they sound reasonable or they sound sanitized, um, which is you know a, a huge tactic of critical race theory to yes. push these ideas, and they hear those things and they don't look deeper into it or they don't consider the deeper, the broader implications. Like it sounds like conspiracy theory when I'd say, when I tell people that like, dude, this is rooted in Marxism. Like yeah. they are Marxists and they're, they're aiming for cultural revolution. They say this explicitly. And it's, so it sounds, <laughs> it sounds like I'm, you know, off my rocker and talking about conspiracy, but that, that that's actually what they're doing and that's actually what they pursue. So it's, it's an interesting thing trying to get people to see the deeper ideology. If you're just joining us, our guest this segment has been Leonidas Johnson. He is the author of Raising Victims, The Pernicious Rise of Critical Race Theory. Leonidas, how can our audience continue to follow your work and follow you online? Yeah, my uh, my my Twitter handle is at Leonidas Johnson. It's L-E-O-N-Y-D-U-S Johnson. Uh, you can follow me on Facebook. It's the same thing, Leonidas Johnson. Uh, I have a Substack. It's leonidas.substack.com. And my website is leonidasjohnson.com. Make, okay. make it easy. Well, <laughs> we're going to follow your Substack right after this. So we'll, we'll put you on our recommendation list. So Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> that's thank great you. having likewise, you on. Likewise. All right. Yeah, it was... <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being our guest. And I hope you'll come back soon. Absolutely. I appreciate you guys. Thank you. All right. Well, this is the portion of the show where we bring DK in, get his take on things. Come on in, DK. Buenos dias. Well, hello, sir. Oh, how are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? Okay. That was an interesting interview. Wasn't Leonidas it? Johnson. Yes. Yes. Homeschooling dad. I love it. 
wrote a very interesting book on CRT. Yeah, you know, it was the first yeah. time really meeting him, but I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. Seems like a great guy. I'm a fan, yeah. So I wanted to talk for a few minutes about um, Nikki Haley to get to just kind of get your impression of what's going on. But I just Nikki wanna... Haley, the one that's past her prime, according to Don <laughs> yeah, Lemon. Exactly. I yeah. Just, just you know, to... I'm a little older than Nikki Haley, just a little bit. So I guess I'm a little, you know, past the expiration date. Well, I according didn't to say, him, I don't want to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right, because you've got a birthday coming up and you'll oh, be the same age as me. And I'm always telling people how old I am. So. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> well, my expiration date might have passed. I had a very short uh, shelf life, so <laughs> you can't, can't go by by me. My prime lasted like 10 minutes in high school. Yeah, don't tell Don Lemon that, though. <laughs> He's being re educated, you know. Oh my goodness, that's yes, always great. You know, he needs to take some classes. So, of course, to Leonidas's point, you know, it's going to be racism. That you know he that you know an educated black man has to take classes. I I think it's basic sensitivity training. You don't tell a woman that she's old. They really believe in those re-education camps. That the uh, they do, don't I they? They that, um, really enjoy those. Jordan Peterson, you know the psychiatrist, is always yeah, on yeah. TV. Yeah, I heard Canada wanted to subject him to yes, a re-education, and he he refused. Yeah, good for him. And I also heard, um, you know, it's one of the, I think it was a Project Veritas undercover video. And some guy in the Bernie Sanders campaign said that once he, once they win, he, he thought they were going to win. And once they win, that all, the, all of us conservatives who wouldn't go along with the Bernie Sanders message might have to be subject to re-education camps. So they really believe in that. I'm not surprised they sent Don Lennon to one. Free pair of mittens with each... <laughs> registration yeah <laughs> oh so i wanted to talk a little bit about nikki haley um we've never met her but she seems to be a pretty impressive person she's the um, first generation daughter of legal immigrants she rose to become governor of a state that's 70 percent white and, and maybe one percent asian uh, she went on to become a u.n ambassador during the trump years um, and she's always been subject to these really bizarre attacks, in my opinion. First, as a gubernatorial candidate, was which is yeah. when I first started to hear the name. Yeah, she was rumored to be having these extramarital affairs. It was just these weird rumors that we've seen other candidates get hit yes. with. You know, like Herman yes, Herman Cain. Um, yep. Who was the other one? Herschel Walker. Yep. And all these all these people supposedly have all this private information they have to announce to the world as soon as they see a Republican running for office. And then when she became UN ambassador, there were these other rumors, um, at least from one best-selling author who was alleging that she was having an affair with Donald Trump. So <laughs> yeah. that was crazy that was crazy it's yeah. been bizarre from the beginning and yeah. then got ann coulter who i used to admire a great deal was She's so been on the offended show a few times that yeah nikki Haley and others apparently did not hold the confederate flag in the same reverence as she did um essentially told nikki Haley to go back to india you know which i thought was a horrible racist That's attack awful. Because also the incident on the view when 
Sonny Holston, whose yep. name is Asuncion, I think. Um, but she goes by Sonny. She mocked Nikki Haley, whose real name is Nikki Haley, for going by the name Nikki Haley. And then, as you just alluded to, it's the whole Don Lemon thing where, you know, he, for some reason, to Don Lemon, 51 years old for a politician is past the prime. And yet he's a shill for the guy in the White House who's 80. Which is why he said it, because she, she says something about politicians over, I think it was 75, should have some sort of cognitive test. So him being a shill had this knee-jerk response that she should go for a cognitive test because she's not in her prime either. It, it makes no sense. You know, politicians are in their prime in their 50s, in my opinion. That's when they're really at their best. We should run. Yeah, I know. See, I'm, look at I've that. Been, I've been running all my life. I never caught anything, <laughs> but I'm, I'm still running. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, I was just saying, you know, 51 is kind of old for the WNBA, you know, yeah. for the Olympic track team, yeah. but for, for a politician, for no. it's right in her, she's right in her prime. So it, it was a, just a New York response. He's, he's He may be kind of sexist anyway, but his... You think? Yeah, because he has kind of a, a reputation of being sexist anyway, but... Oh, talking down to his uh, his co-host? Yeah. 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 Well, co-hosts yeah. can be annoying. I, I, I just, <laughs> so Especially I those women, I yeah. know. Having a woman co-host. For that, but yeah. Have a she was critical of him, too. Wrong, so. I know he didn't like her being critical. <laughs> so anyway... I'm just saying that she's had a long history of enduring these weird, bizarre attacks from the left and the right. Yeah. And um, and recently she came under another attack from, from a panel on MSNBC, which we can look at now. Laura Neil Hurston, not all skin folk are kinfolk. She's the alpha Karen with brown skin. And for white supremacists and racists, she's the perfect Manchurian candidate. She uses her brown skin as a weapon against poor black folks and poor brown folks. And she uses her brown skin to launder white supremacist talking points. <laughs> I just I just wanted to mention that because uh, we've talked so much about how black Republicans, as soon as they become prominent, they start to endure these weird racial attacks, normally from Larry people. Larry Elder, he's the yeah, black face of white supremacy. Are, yeah, who are also black. They just trot these black progressives out to make these racial attacks against black Republicans. We've seen it with Larry Elder; he was called yeah, yeah. the black face of white supremacy. White. Yeah, we've seen it with Alan West. We've seen it with um, Byron Donaldson, you know, the, the great congressman. Byron Donaldson. We've seen it yeah. with um, Tim Scott. Oh you know, yes. He, Token, they call him token with regularity. Yeah. So my theory is, is that either um, they're, they're progressives who either believe that um, anyone outside their progressive bubble is indeed a spokesperson for white supremacy, or they're people who are willing to, to say that for money. And I think mm -hmm. it's often the latter. And I'll, I'll end with that. I, I absolutely agree with you on that point. And with that, we will wrap up this episode of African American Conservatives. I'm Marie. I'm DK. And we're reminding you to go to brightnews.com, go to acons.substack, 
Com. You can find us there. And of course, you'll find our guest today, Leonidas Johnson, because we're going to subscribe to his sub stack there. Uh, and also you can go to anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S. And there you have it. Another episode of African-American conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. <laughs>